Pastor Mark mentioned. Um, the book of Leviticus is one that I've grown um, in much appreciation of, and partly due to the fact that, sadly, I did not appreciate it as much as I, sh- as I should uh, prior to my studies of it, and, and just recognizing, um, yeah, just the scope of God's redemptive plan, you know, starting from the very beginning in the Old Testament, you know, uh, its contribution to the canon of Scripture as well as its cr- connection to Christ. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited to share with you over the next couple weeks what the Lord has taught me. And so, if you guys would, just put on your Old Testament uh, thinking caps, and uh, uh, the Lord will, I pray that the Lord would bless our time together. Um, well, to, just to give you a little background, uh, Leviticus takes us back to the beginning of redemptive history. As it progressively unfolds from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And as many of you know, Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. It's not only the third book of the Bible, it's also the third book of the Pentateuch, which are the five books of Moses, traditionally known as the Torah. It's preceded by Genesis and Exodus, and it's followed by Numbers and Deuteronomy. And where it stands in the Pentateuch, Leviticus lies at the heart and center of the first five books of the Bible. And we'll see the significance of this in a little bit. Can I have my first slide? When we consider its content, Leviticus is by and large a collection of ancient laws, statutes, rituals, and practices by which God's people were called to live during that time. In chapters 1 through 7, we find details regarding the sacrificial system how the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering were to be presented before God. Chapters 8 through 10 concern the priesthood, in particular how Aaron and his sons were to mediate these sacrifices on behalf of the people. Extending outward from Israel's central worship, when we get to chapters 11 through 15, God prescribes specific laws regarding purification among the community of his people. How those with leprosy or bodily discharge and those who had just given birth were to be dealt with. And how distinction was to be made between foods that were clean and unclean. In chapter 16, instructions are given regarding the Day of Atonement. And finally, in chapters 17 through 27, various regulations regarding holy living are stipulated, ranging from vows made to immoral sexual relations. Taken all together, the book of Leviticus is described by one commentator as the constitution of the people of Israel, defining and cementing their identity as a nation under God who had been born out of bondage in Egypt. Now, if you've ever spent any time in the book of Leviticus, it's not the easiest to get through. Not only is it full of ceremonial laws that we no longer adhere to, 
but it was written into an ancient Near East context that is very different from ours. For that reason, it is easy to dismiss its relevance and application for us who live in the 21st century. After all, what do animal sacrifices, laws about purification, and the function of priests have to do with us today? In fact, some have even argued that if you were to take out the book of Leviticus, which contains very little narrative, and jump from the last chapter of Exodus to Numbers chapter 1, not much would be missed in the biblical storyline as the Israelites make their way from Egypt to the promised land. So then why not just skip over Leviticus? Well, the testimony of his word is that God inspired this book for his purpose and for our benefit. 2 Timothy 3.16, a verse that many of us are familiar with, says this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, when the Apostle Paul writes all Scripture, he had more than his own epistles in mind. He was referring specifically to the Old Testament, including the first five books of Moses. And whatever was written in former times was not just for the Israelites, and it wasn't just for the Apostle Paul, but for our instruction today. So the question we ought to ask is not whether Leviticus is relevant, profitable, and worthy of our consideration, but how. What does Leviticus have to teach us today? How does it reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness, purity, and holiness? And that is what I hope to address this morning. And in order to appreciate the significance of Leviticus to our lives, we need to start by considering the nature of this book. What is scripture at the end of the day? Well, the Bible, as the word of God, is what we call divine revelation. It is God's written and revealed words to man. And what God reveals is not ultimately a record of history, though much of the Bible is written as historical narrative. It is not a counseling manual though it does offer wisdom from above. It's not a philosophical treatise, though it does present unashamedly a Christian worldview. It's not a handbook for moral living, though we are expected to obey his word. Rather, what God reveals to his people in the pages of scripture, from the Old Testament all the way through the New, is himself, his character, his will, and his purposes. You can say that that is the authorial intent of the Bible. Now, this is important for us to realize as we come to a book like Leviticus, where God is revealing who he is through the old covenant laws, sacrifices, and rituals. While these ancient practices seem foreign and far removed from us, they serve to make known the God who legislated them. And this God of Leviticus is the same God we are called to worship today. For he is unchanging in his attributes, his purposes, and his promises. In, in that, we find the application of this book to our present lives. In particular, we learn from Leviticus what God desires, 
what he requires and what he provides for those whom he has claimed as his own. And that will serve as our basic outline for us this morning. If I can have my next slide. In the book of Leviticus, we find three aspects of our holy God that draw us to worship him with fear and reverence. Three aspects of our holy God that draw us to worship him with fear and reverence. First, God's desire for fellowship with his people. Second, God's requirement of holiness for his people. And third, God's provision of grace for his people. Well, let's begin with our first point for this morning. God's desire for fellowship with his people. If I can have my next slide. God's presence among his people and his desire for fellowship with them is a central theme in the book of Leviticus. It is highlighted by the fact that the phrase, before the Lord, that is, before his presence, occurs over 50 times in these 27 chapters. Furthermore, in the book of Leviticus, the tabernacle is referred to most commonly as the tent of meeting, where God literally meets with his chosen people, albeit with certain terms and conditions in place. In particular, the Lord dwelt above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, within the veil of the tabernacle. His presence was manifest by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Israelites were constantly reminded that their God, unlike the other gods of the ancient Near East, dwelt with them. He's not only transcendent, but also imminent. And it is into this context that the laws were given in Leviticus to teach them how to live in and enjoy God's presence among them and to maintain fellowship with him. When we trace the history leading up to Leviticus, this theme of God's desire for a relationship with his people is not entirely new. In fact, if we go back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we find that this divine desire is connected to the purpose for which God created man. God chose to create the world and everything in it in six literal days out of his own good pleasure and will. In need of nothing, under no external obligation, he created man to bear and reflect his image, that they might live in perfect communion with him. But that all changed in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, who enjoyed intimate fellowship with God, rebelled against his authority. Fellowship was broken due to sin. They were removed from his presence and this alienation would perpetuate generation after generation as the wickedness of man abounded on earth. The situation was no better after God chose to judge the world with a flood and to start over with Noah. And what we see in our world today, the mass shootings, wars between nations, insistence on personal liberties and rights, abuse of power within and outside the church, is evidence of our broken fellowship with our God. 
In light of this tragic reality, we can praise the Lord that His sovereign purposes have not failed. Rather, they are being fulfilled according to His eternal purpose and will. We see this when we get to the book of Exodus as God sends Moses to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 7, he explicitly states his purpose for their redemption. Declaring of himself, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. But for what purpose? Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. After he makes good on his promise and delivers the Israelites through a series of signs and miracles, God reiterates to his people in Exodus chapter 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." The reason God chose to deliver Israel out of Egypt, his desire and purpose for them was that he might be their God and they might be his people, that they might enjoy a covenant relationship with him and serve as a living testimony of his character and his glory. What makes them unique and special is not anything inherent in them, but God's presence among them. Their identity is rooted in belonging to him. On the heels of his great deliverance, God gives Israel his law at Sinai and instructs them to build the tabernacle where he promises to dwell with them. This promise is sealed and affirmed after Moses finishes erecting the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40 as the glory of the Lord, his manifest presence among them, filled the tabernacle. And this is This takes us to the footstep of Leviticus. And as we get to this book, it is into this context that the laws and regulations for sacrifices, priesthood, purification, and personal holiness were given. They are God's instructions to the people of Israel by which they are to enjoy communion with Him. Fellowship is the goal. The statutes are his appointed means for the Israelites to continue in their covenant relationship. How fellowship with God is to be maintained is the purpose for which Leviticus was written. I'll say that again. How fellowship with God is to be maintained is the purpose for which Leviticus was written. Now this context is vitally important for us to appreciate that the Old Covenant laws were given with this expressed purpose of fellowship in mind. When we isolate God's law and divorce them from His loving design and desire for His people to enjoy close fellowship with Him, they lose their intended meaning and purpose. 
We come to these laws found in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and other portions of Scripture, and they seem arbitrary and meaningless, perhaps even unreasonable, extreme, or legalistic. When we lose sight of His grace toward those who are undeserving, His call to obedience becomes burdensome, even heavy-handed. It is no wonder that God had to continually remind His people of His past grace and deliverance through feasts such as the Passover. Because when they forgot, their obedience became merely external. They brought sacrifices and obeyed the letter of the law, but without a sincere heart of faith, repentance, gratitude, and humility. How often are we guilty of doing the same? of forgetting God's abounding grace in our lives. With this perspective in mind, let's read from Leviticus chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Leviticus chapter 1, starting here at verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. That he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, The priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Here in Leviticus chapter 1, all the way through chapter 7, God institutes the sacrificial system as his instrument by which communion is made possible between him and his people. The various sacrifices open the way for Israel to draw near to a holy God. And the stated reason for the sacrifices, to make atonement for the sins of the people, was simply a means to an end. It was so that Israel might enjoy fellowship and communion with their God. In light of their covenant unfaithfulness in Exodus chapter 32, where the Israelites corrupted themselves by making and worshiping an idol in the form of golden calf, this was an act of grace. When we get to chapters 8 through 10 and the establishment and ordination of the priesthood, we see yet again God's desire for fellowship with his people. He calls Aaron and his sons to serve in the tabernacle throughout all generations. Their primary role was to facilitate the offering of sacrifices on behalf of the people and in doing so to mediate the presence of God before Israel. Clearly, Had God not intended or desired to have an ongoing relationship with them, there would be no need for a priesthood. 
let alone the establishment of a sacrificial system to atone for the sins of his covenant people. Moving on through the rest of Leviticus, we come to the laws of purification in chapters 11 through 15, as well as the regulations of holy living in chapters 17 through 27. How are these connected to God's desire for fellowship with his people? Well, in handing down specific rules for personal holiness and purity, he stipulates what is required for his people to live in his holy presence. If you would, go ahead and skip ahead with me to Leviticus chapter 11. This is the famous chapter on the Old Covenant dietary laws. And go down to verse 39. Leviticus chapter 11, starting at 39. And if any animal which you may eat dies... Whoever touches his carcass shall be unclean until the morning, until the evening, I'm sorry. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground You shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Again, had God wished, he could have simply chosen to withdraw his holy presence from his people after the incident with the golden calf. He was under no obligation to continue to be their God. Instead, out of compassion and grace, God provides in Leviticus laws and regulations that his people are to abide by in order to maintain their covenant relationship with him. The revelation of his will is evidence of his desire to have fellowship with them However, it would not come without a cost, as certain conditions had to be met for the people to approach the Holy One of God, Israel. And this leads to our second point for this morning, God's requirement of holiness for His people. God's requirement of holiness for His people. There is an inescapable requirement that needs to be met in order for Israel to have fellowship with Him. And that is holiness. Only as this prerequisite is satisfied can his people expect to enjoy God's presence. Now when you and I think of the word holiness, we often think of this idea of being morally perfect or without sin. In that sense, God alone is holy. 
For there is none who is morally perfect but the Lord. Without question, that is an accurate description of God's holiness. But it is incomplete. Literally, the Hebrew root, kadash, means to be set apart, separate, sanctified. When we hear that definition of what it means to be holy, many of us imagine some cold, impersonal, religious piety. We have this mental picture of someone who is holier than thou. Perhaps this is part of the reason we struggle with the book of Leviticus. We read about these Old Testament rituals and practices, and they seem almost mechanical. As if the people are merely instructed to go through the motions. But nothing could be further from the truth. I appreciate how Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on sanctification, defines holiness as a wholehearted devotion to God. A wholehearted devotion to God. This devotion is to be unconditional, without reserve on our part. Simply put, it means being entirely His, so that all that we do and possess are His. It is deeply personal, not cold and mechanical. It does mean to be set apart, separate and distinct from all that is around us, but for the purpose of belonging to Him. This truth is highlighted by the surrounding context of Leviticus. Historically, when we consider where Leviticus falls in the biblical narrative, the Israelites had just been delivered out of Egypt, a land of idolaters with the worship of many pagan gods. And where were God's people heading? To the promised land of Canaan, where their inhabitants worshipped foreign gods, Baal being a one among them. It is not mere coincidence that God places Leviticus at the center and as the focal point of the Pentateuch between Exodus and Numbers, between Egypt and Canaan, to remind his people that they are to be devoted exclusively and entirely to him. Holiness is what the Lord is communicating through the book of Leviticus. This requirement and expectation of his people not only is at the heart of the Pentateuch, but also reflects the heart of God. Israel's calling to be wholly set apart, separate and distinct from all surrounding nations was to serve as a witness to the holiness of God. In Leviticus chapters 8 through 10, Aaron and his sons are set apart and consecrated by God to serve him as priests. Multiple sacrifices are offered as part of their ordination. For though they are set apart from the people, they have no inherent holiness of their own. Their sins must be atoned for through the shedding of blood. For the holy God they serve is a consuming fire. We will look more closely at this section next week and learn how those who approach him and make light of his requirement for holiness, especially when serving in positions of authority, privilege, and influence, do so at their own peril. In Leviticus 11 through 15, we read about the purity and cleanliness that God requires in the community of his people. Childbirth, menstruation, Leprosy and bodily discharge all render a person unclean 
And he or she must be cleansed in the manner prescribed before re-entering into the presence of his holiness. Within the same context, the dietary laws we read just earlier about were given. When viewed through the lens of God's requirement for holiness, these dietary restrictions are ultimately not about prohibiting unhealthy foods or promoting good health, as some commentators have suggested. God is not recommending to the Israelites an Old Testament version of the DASH diet, the Paleo diet, the Atkins diet, or vegan diet. While these dietary laws would be later made obsolete by Christ in Mark chapter 7, when he declared all foods clean, these ordinances served God's purpose in setting Israel apart for himself and in solidifying their covenant relationship with him. In the same way, the laws that deal with cleansing from physical defilement and purity are not about good hygiene. These special purity laws were to remind the Israelites that they are to be distinct from all the neighboring nations, for the Lord had claimed them for himself. While there potentially could be some health benefits, the primary benefit for the Israelites was God's presence among them. The final section of Leviticus from Leviticus 17 through 27 also underscores God's requirement for holy living. Regulations for vows and dedications, appointed feasts and sexual relations, as well as punishment for injury, blasphemy, and murder, highlight the fact that every aspect of one's personal, family, and social life was to be set apart to the Lord. Because he is their God, the Israelites were to care for the poor and helpless among them, to avoid partiality and injustice, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and incestuous practices were prohibited. All forms of idolatry, including divination, sorcery, and mediums, were to be avoided. Their children were not to be sacrificed to Moloch. They were to observe the Sabbath and to celebrate the Passover. Holiness was to be a total commitment and no significant area of life escaped God's calling to be holy, devoted to Him. Leviticus 19.2 sums up in one statement God's requirement for holiness for His people. You shall be holy. For what? For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Reflected in every statute, Recorded in the book of Leviticus, this holiness that God requires is not some intrinsic human quality, nor is it intended to be merely a matter of keeping the Old Testament rituals or of outward obedience to the Ten Commandments. Instead, holiness means knowing God and displaying His character as the Holy One of Israel. It was to flow out of their covenant relationship with him. Be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. As his people enjoyed fellowship with him, they would be conformed to reflect the God to whom they belong. 
His was the basis and standard for their holiness. Through living a life distinct from those of other nations who worship other gods, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In case you think that this calling and requirement was only meant for Israel, the Apostle Peter applies the same principle of holiness to believers in the New Testament. To those exiled and dispersed throughout Asia Minor, he writes in 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In the very next chapter, he reminds them, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. While the nation of Israel remains distinct from the church in God's eternal and redemptive plan, the Lord is singular in his expectation of those who are his. Whether in the New Test- Old Testament or the New, whether the nation of Israel or the church of Jesus Christ, whether called out of Egypt or called out of sin and darkness, God's requirement of his people are unchanged, for he is undiminished in his holiness. We are to be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. God's expectation of holiness is clear, and it is consistent. But it also creates a major dilemma. For the history of Israel shows that his people are unable to meet his requirement for them. Despite their election, the Israelites are more like the nations around them than the holy nation they are called to be. Unlike the Lord their God, they are unholy. This reality is demonstrated by their idolatry leading up to Leviticus with the golden calf and their covenant unfaithfulness following Leviticus, which resulted in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and continued on through the period of the judges and the kings to their eventual exile from the land. And the consequence of their unholiness, of their lack of total devotion to God, is a broken fellowship with him. But here is where the book of Leviticus offers tremendous hope. Even though Israel is unfaithful, God is faithful to his promises and to his purposes for his people. And where man repeatedly fails, God's grace always prevails. And we see this as we come to our third and final point for this morning, God's provision of grace for his people. God's provision of grace for his people. What he requires of them, what they cannot fulfill, God provides through his grace. Without compromising his absolute holiness, God offers a means of forgiveness and acceptance to his covenant people. While foreign to us today, Animal sacrifices were not so strange to the original audience of Leviticus. It was a fairly common and familiar practice in ancient times. 
as many of the surrounding nations offered sacrifices to their pagan gods. But for Israel, these sacrifices were to serve an entirely different purpose. It was not to curry favor from the gods or simply to appease them, but to obtain atonement for their sins. Atonement was the necessary reason for the sacrifices. Without a doubt, the slaughtering of sheep, rams, goats, bulls, turtle doves, pigeons, and other animals served as a constant reminder of God's holiness, their depravity, and the high cost of sin. But it also revealed God's willingness to forgive if they would simply obey out of faith, humility, and repentance. This grace is most evident when we get to Leviticus chapter 16. So go ahead and turn there with me. Leviticus chapter 16. This is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And it is placed at the very epicenter of the Pentateuch, which is really one literary unit. It is what the book of the law ultimately points to. Israel's need for forgiveness and atonement. On this special day, once a year, and only once a year, the high priest would be allowed into the most holy place behind the veil to make atonement for all the sins of the people of Israel. We'll read starting at verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. The whole point of this day, of all the rituals and sacrifices that took place, was to obtain atonement for sin. The high priest, after cleansing and offering sacrifice for himself, would offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. Cleansing and purification with blood was also required of the holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, for the place of God's indwelling had been defiled by the sins of Israel. Two goats were then brought forth, One was slaughtered as a sin offering in place of Israel with its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat to secure forgiveness for the sins of the people. The second goat would then be brought forth before Aaron, the high priest, who would lay both of his hands on its head 
and confess over it all the transgressions, iniquities, and sins of the people. Serving as a substitute, the goat would bear the sins of the Israelites as it was released into the wilderness, presumably to die. What is clearly put on display on this day of atonement is the holiness and grace of God. On the one hand, the Lord God is holy, and no one can come into his presence without forgiveness of sins. But he is also gracious, for he provides the means of atonement out of love for his people. Here is where God's desire for fellowship and his requirement for holiness come together. It is, it is satisfied through the provision of his grace, through the substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people. That is the message communicated through Leviticus. And not only through Leviticus, but also through the Pentateuch. And not only through the Pentateuch, but also through the Gospel. For according to the book of Hebrews, Leviticus ultimately points to a greater sacrifice and a greater priesthood than the one prescribed in the Old Covenant. It points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the recipients of the letter would have appreciated this being Jews who followed the Old Covenant laws and sacrificial system. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the great high priest who is the mediator of a new covenant, who entered the most holy place, not just once a year, but once for all, to put away sin. And not through the blood of animals, but through his own shed blood. Through his atoning and substitutionary sacrifice, he now grants free access to the presence and throne of God, to anyone who would humbly repent and come to him by faith for the forgiveness of our sin. The reason he left heaven's glory and entered our darkness was not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, so that he might be the end of the law. And having satisfied the requirement of holiness on our behalf, Christ restores our fellowship with God. This is the grace of the gospel that we celebrate whenever we come to the Lord's table and whenever we gather as his saints. What a God and what a Savior we have in Christ. I'll close with one final illustration, if I can have my next slide. When I was a second-year medical student in San Diego, and Jeff, you remember this, we spent hours, countless hours, studying our physiology and anatomy textbooks, looking at 2D diagrams and images of the human body. We would then move to the anatomy lab, where we would dissect cadavers that reeked of formaldehyde, in order to identify individual bones, muscles, nerves, and organs. We would get tested on what we had studied. And then we would do it all over again, but on a different part of the body. And many times, it felt like rote memorization and repetition. And I'm sure the Israelites felt the same way, having to offer sacrifices day after day, month after month, year after year. But one day, 
By God's grace, we not only passed our anatomy exams, but graduated from medical school and completed our residency training in our respective specialty. Fast forward to today. Looking back, I now have a much greater knowledge and appreciation for what I do as a family physician, taking care of live patients that I then had I not spent those late nights staring at diagrams, models of human body in our medical school library and lab. In the same way, studying Leviticus grows our understanding of the cross. For the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of Christ's sacrifice. The only adequate death that could forgive our sins. It also grows our knowledge of the holy God of Israel who has communicated through his laws, his desire for fellowship, his requirement for holiness, and his provision of grace for his people. But the goal of God's self-revelation and the chief end of man is not knowledge, but worship. If our knowledge of God or the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement does not draw us to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we have completely missed the point. Properly applied, Leviticus must expand our affection and appreciation for Christ. For in the end, He is the one to whom all the Old Covenant laws, sacrifices, and rituals point. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, they are a tutor to lead us to Christ. At the same time, Leviticus ought to deepen our worship of a God who is holy and expects us to reflect his holiness through our lives. Doctrine rightly believed always leads to duty and delight in him. If I can have my final slide. So then, brothers and sisters, is this the God and Savior whom you worship today? Do you know him? And does your life reflect his holiness? Are you entirely and exclusively devoted to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us this morning. The words of Leviticus. And how we need to hear it for our present generation, for our present lives. For us to stop and behold your holiness. For us to pause in the midst of our busy lives as we think about the summer that's ahead. Lord, for us to remember who you are and what you've done on our behalf so that we can have fellowship with you. And Lord, it is out of your grace that now you call us to a life of holiness, to strive after holiness without which none of us would see you. Lord, it is our calling as a church and it is our greatest privilege that we can pursue this calling together as your household as we long one day to see you face to face, to behold your holiness and to be humbled and in awe of your greatness in our lives. Make this true of us, 
what you have prescribed and described in your word. Make this true of us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.